You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster. On today's show, after their success in the US midterms, rebel Democrats aim to block Nancy Pelosi's selection as Speaker of the House of Representatives. What now for the Japanese car giant Nissan after boss Carlos Ghosn is arrested amid claims of financial misconduct? The DUP, the party propping up Theresa May's government, votes against her budget in protest over her EU withdrawal plan. My guests, Terry Stiatsny and Charles Hecker, will be discussing these and the day's other top story. The gherkin, the walkie-talkie, the cheese grater, and now possibly the tulip. Does London really need another skyscraper with a silly shape? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Terry Stiatsny, the political journalist and author, and Charles Hecker, who's the senior partner of Control Risks. Welcome both of you to the program. Now, in the United States, 16 rebel Democrats have explained why they want to block the election of the veteran politician Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House of Representatives. They say that she is out of touch with the public, which in the midterm elections voted for a number of Democratic candidates who campaigned for change to Washington status quo. However, Ms. Pelosi's allies are rallying around her, claiming her experience and commitment are too important to pass up. So are they right? Or could the issue tear the party apart? Just Smith's looking to get the upper hand over Donald Trump after winning control of the House. The thing which springs to mind, and this is really to both of you to get a response, is that Donald Trump must be absolutely loving this because he's known for causing dissent amongst people. And here you've got dissent and he hasn't had a hand in it. Um, I think, yes, it's inevitable that uh, although the Democrats have done relatively well in in the midterm elections, particularly as far as the House is concerned, they're still when you're still not in power, when you feel like you might be within reach of power, that is often when people start to try and look ahead. And it does often mean, you know, tearing yourself apart. And people must have been looking at uh, the candidates who've been successful in the most recent elections. And I think what the Democrats have here is kind of a generational problem. They've got an old generation that wants to stay where they are, wants to keep control of these very important roles within the House. Uh, and you've got a new generation coming in saying, look, the way we've been doing things up until now hasn't been working. And so it's time for a change. Yeah, revolutions are supposed to eat they're young. But I think what's happening in Congress right now is that this sort of mini revolution among the Democrats is probably going to eat its parents. Um, What's going to happen to the Democrats as they are, as they take over the lower house, the House of Representatives in Congress is that Donald Trump is going to use them as a scapegoat for everything that goes wrong in Washington for the next two years. And you even saw him offering to help Nancy Pelosi get into the speaker's role and and to take control of the Democratic Party in the House because he knows that she's unpopular and he knows that he can use her as a lightning rod. And so that message is not lost on this new class of of Democrats, of fairly leftward leaning Democrats who have come in. And I guess, you know, the electorate probably assumed that they were trying to sweep out the Republicans. What's come in behind that, as Terry suggests, 
is they're also trying to sweep out some of the Democrats. But there was an inevitability to that as well, I guess. But look, the point about it is that, yes, you can understand how, um, the, the, well, why they don't want her there. But on the other hand, she has made it clear that, yes, because of our position in the House, we can actually take control of some of the key committees, notably the ones designed to investigate Mr. Trump's tax affairs. But we have to be very, very careful about this. Otherwise, we will make him look like a victim. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they have to worry too much about making him look like a victim. He's setting himself up for all of this. And and you can bet that the Democrats in the House are going to spend as much time as they can in the next two years investigating President Trump's every past move, every future move. And today they've announced that they want to investigate, of course, uh, President Trump's daughter, Ivanka, for using her personal email on government business. Uh, so... They will. They won't make him a victim, and, and the one way that they won't do that is they won't try to impeach him. I mean, I think that would be thrusting the president mm. into victimhood and would be starting a losing battle. But, but I think the point about it, though, Terry, is that Nancy Pelosi would say, look, I, I've been through similar things like this before, and at times like this, when you're on the cusp of achieving something significant, it takes a firm, steady hand for the strategy, not a hothead, otherwise everything's going to get derailed. Yes, I think we shouldn't, you know, talk down the the value of Nancy Pelosi's experience. I mean, after all, she was, of course, you know, the first woman speaker. She's been in that job and then out of it. Um, she obviously has a huge amount of experience. And what one of the things that you do need at a time like this is someone with a good deal of experience, you know, in the procedure as well, if nothing else, you know, knowing how things work, knowing how you can get your majorities, knowing, being able to count the votes and win the votes, which, you know, as we've seen, of course, it's everywhere is is always really important, um, but I think it's this is sort of symptomatic of a bigger problem for the Democrats, and that bigger problem is looking to the next presidential election and, for instance, who they are going to run as a presidential candidate. And if you look at all the people who, you know, have put themselves out there so far as possible candidates, whether that's Hillary Clinton running again, whether that's Bernie Sanders, whether that's you know Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg is 76. Bernie Sanders is 77. Hillary Clinton is 71. Even Elizabeth Warren is 69. Yeah, but Donald you know, Trump's 72 in 2020. He's 72. I mean, are we really going to have another election in two years' time where we've got people who are pushing into their into their 70s or 80s? You know, let's, you know, I'm sure if they're, if they're all still with us. So oh. I think you've got to, you know, these people are all far older than their last president. And that was actually the point which I was going to put to you as well, Charles. I mean, how much of this row is about what... Nancy Pelosi represents that she's seen, to put it unkindly, as a relic of the past and how much of it is about her age because she's coming up for 80. Yes. I mean, look, there has been a generational change in the people that have been voted in to Congress on the most recent elections. And and, and the embodiment of that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's 28 years old and is representing a new political, political philosophy and a lot of fresh political blood. I mean, I think the interesting thing about, about Representative Pelosi is that, you know, she is the congresswoman who ushered in almost single-handedly Obamacare. And, and created equal health care coverage for anybody who didn't have it in the United States. In order to do that, she has amassed enormous power. And I think that's also part of what this younger class is rebelling against, because I don't think that Nancy Pelosi has ever hesitated to play real hardball politics. She's played it with money. She's played it with votes. She's played it with the sort of political oxygen that a person in her position can control. Well, we would expect that of her, surely, because look, let's let's face it, I mean, you know, the job, it's, it's not really for the faint hearted. This is bare pit politics. But stripping all of this aside about um, the generational conflict, it's 
Nancy Pelosi is certainly amongst a lot of the Americans that I've spoken to. The impression you get is that she is extraordinarily divisive. Why? <laughs> Who'd like to tackle well, that one? You know, <laughs> um, I think that, look, look at President Trump refers to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, who's the senior Democrat in the Senate, as Nancy and Chuck. And he puts them together as this sort of lightning rod for everything that's wrong with the Democrats. She's painted as a liberal. Chuck Schumer is also painted as, as a liberal. Um, she's described as being out of touch. I mean, I suppose anybody, particularly a woman, who gets into a position of that extraordinary level of power is going to have everybody shooting slings and, and arrows at her. Um, she, by virtue of the role, is controversial, and I think by virtue of her gender, has been made more controversial. Um, and I suppose the fact that she's been in the position for quite some time has people saying, look, you know, if there's this blue wave, let's make it a young blue wave and bring in some new blood. If you don't last that long in politics without making a fair few enemies along the way, particularly if you're, you know, if you're playing hardball, and, and I think, yeah, as well, particularly if you're a woman who's seen as, as playing mm. hardball. In, in terms of this context, I mean, just reading about this, it's, it really does boil down to the maths, really, the numbers. I mean, she's pretty confident about holding on to this, but on the other hand, it, it could be misplaced. Well, the one thing that she has been able to do is she's been able to muster incredible party discipline. Amongst the old guard. That's right. Well, amongst <laughs> the Democratic Party, because what she's got to be able to do in her job is look the Senate in the face, a Republican Senate, look them in the face and say, I've got the votes to beat you or I've got my votes all corralled together. And I guess one of the biggest issues that she must be grappling with right now is that if the Democrats start to consume themselves, if they start to cannibalize each other, then they will not be able to form any kind of a united opposition to the Republicans that remain in the House and the Republican-dominated Senate. And it's that cohesion and it's that internal party discipline that the Democrats need to be very, very careful about. Recall that the Republicans came on stuck on repealing Obamacare um, in the previous iteration of the Congress because of the Freedom Caucus, which was the sort of far right equivalent of the far left that we're seeing now. And so unless she can control her flock and if she's unseated, there's a risk that the Democrats fail to unite in the next Congress. A final word briefly, Terry, do you think she's going to win? Uh, I think, again, you know, Charles probably know, knows the numbers better than I do. Um, the number of rebels on her own side at the moment, you know, publicly declared seems fairly small. And as we say, this is, you know, this is a woman who's known how to count votes for a long time. And, and it would, I think, be quite surprising if she wasn't able to, to use that influence that she's built up over the years to, to manage to get this one over the line. But you kind of hope that they can form some kind of alliance with the next generation and, and start, you know, teaching those those skills and that sort of political nous to the newcomers. All right, so no more cannibalising work together. Let's move on now to business because the Japanese car giant Nissan is in crisis management mode after boss Carlos Ghosn was arrested over claims of financial misconduct. Mr Ghosn, who took the company into an alliance with rival car makers Renault and Mitsubishi, is accused of understating his income and using company assets to buy four luxury properties that had no relevance to the business. Nissan, who shares loftos of 5% of their value on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, isn't the first company to get hit by a massive scandal, nor will it be the last. So how can it win back its credibility and the trust of its investors. Now, Charles, this is something that you're all too familiar with in your line of work. We have to stress, of course, that these are allegations because nothing as yet is proven. And of course, we don't want to get sued. But if you were advising the Nissan board, 
Where would you tell them to start, apart from the beginning? That's the obvious place. Well, you're absolutely right. So what we have is the building in in real time of a business school case study in corporate crisis management, and it's unfolding before our eyes. And any company that faces this situation had better be prepared well in advance. Companies can never, ever think that this will never happen to us. And if the senior executives of this company or any other big international player like this, if they don't have a crisis management plan in their top desk drawers, ready to dictate their actions in the first minutes, in the first hours, and the first days of this crisis, they're sunk because they're going to flounder. And, you know, we know that share prices always tank when a crisis goes public. And frankly, a 5% drop isn't that bad, given the scope of everything. Well, hang on, the week isn't over yet. <laughs> you're right, you're right. There's, there's, there may be more to run on this. But we know that share prices tank when crises are made public. But we also know that effective crisis management can actually boost your share higher than it was before the crisis was announced. Poor crisis management leaves your share price in the basement. Mm. And this is the interesting point, isn't it, Terry, that any company, no matter how big or small it is, it needs to have some sort of plan that it can call upon if there is a problem. And I'm not quite sure that Nissan had such a plan. It so much depends on the person at the top. I think this is another case of sort of chief executive hubris, if you like. And although uh, the incoming you know, head of Nissan has, has, I think, probably started from a quite a good place in terms of crisis management and said, look, we concentrated too much power in one individual and being quite critical of the way decision making had worked up until mm, now. Seems effectively in control of three companies. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit too late to be doing that. And I think the danger, and we have saw it with other companies for instance, like um, WPP in Britain, where you had Sir Martin Sorrell, who had been very, very well paid, um, and then he had his pay cut from £70 million a year to £48 million a year, ended up leaving the company after questions about his own misuse of, about, of personal funds. We had the case of Persimmon, the house builder, when the chief executive was asked to justify his £70 million bonus by a, a reporter on the news, and couldn't justify it, tried to stop the interview, and then... Shortly after that, had to, you know, if you have this sense that somebody is so closely identified with the company that they almost become the company themselves, uh, and those their decisions and whatever they are can't be queried by people in the board, let alone in the rest of the company, then you're leaving yourself wide open for a crisis to happen. You know, see whatever plan you have, if if your CEO is kind of almighty then that's going, to cre- that's going to create the problems. Mm, because, Charles, he had been in the job for a very long time, but also as well, the, the sort of high-watering thing about this story is, is that salary, $69 million. I mean, how can you justify that? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing about, about chief executives. You know, we were just talking about a politician who's been in office and who's been in power and who's been in control for a very, very long time and who has come to personify the democratic leadership of the Congress. The same thing happens in companies. And CEOs, you know, best practice usually says that CEOs shouldn't be in office for more than about 10 years, give or take. Um, and Carlos Ghosn had bid in his role at Nissan for almost twice that. Uh, and the so, millennium, in other words. Yeah, I mean, he, <laughs> two centuries. You know, and, and not to sort of personalize this about Nissan or to personalize it about Carlos Ghosn, um, but CEOs and politicians 
can stay in office for too long. And what happens is they develop a cult of personality. And, and I think as Terry said, you know, they begin to personify the company. And then when it comes to their compensation packages, boards of directors, <coughs> compensation committees, and, and, and the people who control what CEOs make in general become afraid to say no. Mm. And that's, I think, why you get this this spectacular um, these spectacular salary numbers. Um, there are contracts written in that have these sorts of escalators, and and I think people just don't say no when somebody's been in control for that long. Is it is it because someone's been in control for that long, Terry, or is it also based on the sort of naked the naked word profit? In other words, look, the company's doing like really well. We're all filthy rich as the shareholders. So if this guy's being paid sixty nine million or seventy nine million, what the heck? We're getting loads of dollars. Well, well, I think that's uh, the reason that these kind of compensation packages get mm. agreed because they do say precisely, look, you know, look at the amount of growth I've given, look at the amount of shareholder value I've given to this company. But then we have seen other cases recently where uh, this was kind of illusory. I mean, another, I mean, it's a smaller case on a global scale, but the case of the Patisserie Valerie company mm. lately, where the, there the chief executive, you know, had to leave the company because it turned out he had been <laughs> paying himself more than once. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the, the whole set of the company... He has a big account. household to run, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> he needed to eat a lot of cakes, but, you know... Absolutely. Which is, <laughs> but I think the other thing about Carlos Ghosn is, you know, this company is so important, not only just in terms of its own industry, but politically as well. I mean, look at, you know, the French state owns 15% of Renault. Uh, Nissan generally is a, such a big foreign direct investor. You know, Sunderland, where they have their plant in the UK produces 30% of the UK's currency. So that gives you access not only to the business world, but also um, to the political world. And that gives you a whole other you know, level of, of political power and influence. You know, it's very interesting that you mentioned the Patisserie Valerie case, because, of course, the CEO of Patisserie Valerie is accused, forgive me for what I'm about to say, of cooking the books. Oh, dear. Uh, but, and that's the other thing, and that is these, these, this, these senior leaders who've been there forever, they escape the checks and balances that are built into companies to prevent these sorts of things from happening. Right, and the moral of the story is too much cake is a very bad thing. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Charles Hacker, and Terry Stiatsny. Now, coming up next... The DUP, the party supporting Theresa May's government, votes against her latest budget in protest over her handling of the Brexit negotiations. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you will get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. 
Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. Well, still with me are Charles Hecker and Terry Stiasny. Now, the latest chapter in the ongoing Brexit saga has been written by the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, whose 10 MPs are propping up Theresa May's government. They sided with the opposition Labour Party and voted against Mrs May's budget in protest over her Brexit negotiations. The DUP says the Prime Minister's draft withdrawal agreement breaks a promise not to treat Northern Ireland any differently from the rest of the UK. A slap in the face? Perhaps especially after Mrs May gave the DUP a billion pounds in exchange for their support in a so-called confidence and supply arrangement deal. Terry, was Mrs May ripped off? Uh, well, at the moment, uh, I would say, I mean, this is, uh, you know, a, a billion, uh, over a billion pounds over five years for various th- aspects of the Northern Ireland economy, which was all uh, set out in the deal that they did after the last election last year. Um, the trouble is, at the moment, on the face of it, looking at what the confidence of supply agreement promises, the, the DUP don't seem to be doing an awful lot of, you know, providing confidence. I mean, they have they agreed in that document to say that they would support the budget, the finance bills, the money bills, and obviously most importantly at the moment, all legislation on the UK's exit from the EU. Now, everybody still seems to say that this agreement exists in name, um, but if you're not voting to support the Brexit legislation and you're not voting to support the budget and in fact voting with the opposition, then it's hard to see, you know, in what real sense this agreement still exists. And people saying, well, they're just holding this over Theresa May as a threat in the hope of getting something very different from from the from the talks and from the the withdrawal agreement once it's signed but there doesn't seem to be very much prospect out of the moment which which means in effect that Theresa May would not really have a working majority and she would certainly not have the majority that you know she said that she had when when she formed her government it sounds to me as if you're saying in a very roundabout and polite sort of way <laughs> that yes she has been ripped off but I mean <laughs> Charles if, if Mrs May were to lose power wouldn't the DUP be shooting themselves in the foot over this because they're not likely to get something as good as this, a billion pounds plus, from whoever happens to win? They're not. Um, But I think I'm going to say that the DUP will probably pull up short of bringing down the government. Um, The first group that's tried to bring down the government, the ERG, led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, has failed so far to unseat <laughs> the prime minister. And, and and usually groups look for some sort of critical mass or momentum. They wait for somebody else to make the first move. So it doesn't think, I don't think, that the DUP will muster the courage to bring down the prime minister. The other thing is that the DUP, like everybody else, nobody really knows what would happen next if they pulled their support from the prime minister and the government genuinely collapsed. Everyone is afraid of crashing out of the European Union. Everyone's afraid of the potential of a general election. I think that the prime minister is getting very bad value for money, but I don't think she's flush the money completely down the hole. But just picking up on a point which you made earlier, Terry, I mean, the, 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 an outsider looking in might say, look, there's something sl- slightly obscene about the idea that you've got a government which isn't able to govern properly because its partner is working against it or may threaten to work against it. So doesn't that really make a general election inevitable? Uh, it doesn't really make a general election inevitable. Or at partly, least contribute to that. It makes it 
slightly more likely. I mean, the Labour Party keeps saying that that's the thing that they want more than anything else. You know, let's, you know, our first answer is not another referendum. Our first answer is let's call a general election. But I think as we saw last night, Labour aren't really kind of pushing their advantage ruthlessly in these cases. I mean, you know, their own leader, Jeremy Corbyn, said that he, he was, you know, away from Westminster and, and not expected to vote on this last night. But they didn't, you know, rally their people. We've been talking up until now about the importance of getting your numbers, counting your votes, and they haven't been pushing this. That said, it is more complicated um, at the moment to get a general election because at the moment you could have a situation where the government doesn't have a working majority, but under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, you've still got to have a two-thirds majority to be able to call a general Mm. election. So you could have this, we could end up in a strange sort of limbo where the government doesn't have a majority, but yet they still don't fall. Mm, But but gridlocked government nonetheless. A gridlocked government, which is having problems getting any form of legislation through. And we've seen its own side rebelling, of course, not only on, on the big Brexit vote that's going to come, but also on things like, you know, things in the budget bill like uh, this question of fixed odds betting terminals that saw the government lose a minister and then have to have to change the policy back so you know so they need not have lost that minister in the first place but that's again under pressure and so yeah any kind of legislative agenda is going to be very very hard but i suppose charles the the byproduct that's come out of all of this which would be rather unfortunate for the dup is the fact that it's actually put the question of the United Ireland back on the agenda, the political agenda, because of Brexit. The fact that it's now being talked about quite openly, perhaps a, a younger generation losing the fear of being united to the Republic. Yeah, it, it's so interesting that in an organisation that is normally referred to as the mother of all parliaments and in a country that is known for its transparency and its consistency, its reliability and the stability of its government, that the very stability of the union is called into question now fairly regularly. And that is one of the most destabilising things that can happen to this country um, you know, in anyone's imagination. And so, yes, the fact that there are people, you know, even joking referring to, oh, well, let them have the North back and we'll just get on with it. Because it wasn't talked about with the Good Friday Accord. It seemed to sort of lay the whole question to rest. No, you're absolutely right. And that's what's been completely lost in this conversation is really that this is about maintaining or supporting or you know, continuing this enshrinement of the peace process. Um, and we're, we're stuck again in politics, we're stuck in economics, and we're stuck in the European Union, and we're forgetting how hard fought and how long it took to get to these Uh, to get this peace accord, and frankly, that Stormont itself is still in suspense. Mm, Okay. well, let's move on now to our our finally moment, because there was the gherkin, the cheese grater, the walkie-talkie, and if the planning authorities give the go-ahead, London Skyline can soon find itself playing host to the tulip. What is the tulip? Well, at 1,000 feet, the tulip would be the tallest skyscraper in the capital's financial district, boasting internal slides with moving transport pods running outside the building for visitors to take a ride in if they're brave enough. Which begs the question, what is the point of this and does London really need another building with a rather silly shape? I mean, I've I've seen a picture of this design. It just reminds me of a tulip-shaped lollipop, personally. (laughs) 
I think this building looks it like I, I do like a lot of Norman Foster's work, but uh, this one seems to be neither use nor ornament. It's not some of the other new skyscrapers that have gone up in London. They're office space, so the Shard has got you know plenty of companies based in it. This is just a big, tall sort of stem with lifts in it, with internal slides at the top and moving these moving transparent pods, which just seem to have a view over other skyscrapers. And we know that the Tate Gallery's had enough problems lately because people in their new building are going around looking into all the flats and offices next door and the other people aren't very happy about it so um you know there are plenty if you want to go to high buildings in london and and look around you know there's the london eye there's the the you know the shard there are various places you can already go and you know i don't see that we need another one i mean charles it strikes me as a bit weird because we live in an age when we're supposed to be sort of environmentally conscious and i've heard people saying look skyscrapers aren't exactly environmentally friendly because their height means they trap the impurities in the air. If you didn't have so many tall buildings, maybe the impurities could disperse a bit more. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate on this one. Not at all in support, by the way, of this particular monument. I don't believe monument. you. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, far be it for me to criticize Norman Foster, but I agree with you completely about the appearance of this thing. And I agree with a comment that I read earlier today that this looks like the kind of architecture that you would see in a country ruled by a dictator. Um, <laughs> but... As to skyscrapers, they can actually be surprisingly green. Imagine if you take a building the size of the Shard, which is 70-some-odd stories, and imagine sort of laying it flat or making each story of that building a separate structure. Imagine the land, the water, you know, everything that, that a structure like that would take up. When they are sort of neatly piled on top of each other, skyscrapers like this actually save a lot of space and are not as destroying to the environment as we might well, think. Only if you put people in them. This well, one's going to be empty. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, if this one's empty, then perhaps it's, it's, it's decorative and not such a great idea. Okay, personally, it's not my cup of tea, but I think you guys are guessed at that. But that brings us to the end of today's show. Terry Stiatini and Charles Hecker, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel Delisante. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next than at 1900. It's on design with Josh Bernard. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200.